You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, before we study God's Word, I want to remind us that we are members of a collective of churches that span across the entire world. We are the Great Commission Collective as a group of churches, and many of you that have been paying attention to what has been going on across the world know that there is increasingly and increasingly a collective joining of world forces to attack biblical Christianity. And a couple weeks ago, that was on display through some legislation that was passed in Canada as well as the UK concerning conversion therapy. Now, one of the things that happens in America and with Christians is we often get pieces of information and immediately run to conclusions. But what I want to do this morning is to be able to read a statement from Canadian churches of like-minded churches, as well as Great Commission Collective churches within Canada, for the purpose of educating us more on what the bill actually was in Canada as well as the resolve of the churches and our sister churches in Canada, as well as to make us more aware of this collective attack against biblical Christianity and how we can be aware of it, pray for those who are going through it, and be prepared if and when it takes place in this detail in our country. Here is the statement. Recently, a monumental change in Canadian law and society occurred with the enactment of Federal Bill C-4, which amends the criminal code. The law's stated purpose is to outlaw conversion therapy. We, the churches that were reading this statement, strongly oppose the coercive and unscientific therapeutic practices the bill was intended to address. We appreciate and affirm the desire of parliamentarians to protect the vulnerable. However, we are deeply concerned that the effective reach of the legislation could be extended far beyond its stated purpose. Because its definition of conversion therapy is vague, many are concerned that it could capture parents, pastors, and counselors who teach a biblical understanding of sexuality in a variety of situations. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees our freedoms of religion, conscience, thought, belief, expression, and association. It is our prayer that the law will be applied and clarified as needed in such a way as to honor these charter protections. We recognize that the greatest danger facing the Canadian church is not that we might face criminal persecution, but rather that we might compromise in our teaching of the word of God or fall silent in our proclamation of the gospel. Along with church leaders of like conviction across Canada, we stand before you today to pledge that we are committed to obeying God above all others, Acts 5.29, with the Lord's help, We will continue to proclaim the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27, without fear or or favor. This includes God's life-giving design for human beings made in his image, male and female, Genesis 1, 27, with sexual intimacy reserved for the covenantal union of a man and a woman, Genesis 2, 24. We will continue to issue the call to repent of all kinds of sin and believe the gospel, 
Knowing that we all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and that salvation through Jesus is the one true hope for the world, Acts 4.12. We will continue to love and serve all people in our community without distinction in Jesus' name. As we press on in the work of ministry, we will trust our Heavenly Father to guard us and keep us and to work out His greater purposes for our good and His glory. We continue to pray for our government and to plead with the Lord to have mercy on our needy land. I love the resolve of these pastors and want to join you in praying for them. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, we thank you that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are resolved to uphold your standards, who are resolved to continue to proclaim the gospel even though it flies in the face of popular opinion, even though in some respects it could actually contradict the laws of the land. We also love the spirit and the heart behind this statement that considers every human being image bearers and therefore worthy of our love and attention. We thank you that their resolve and definitions are centered and grounded in your word, that the love that they express is a gospel love, that the design that they refer to is your unchanging creative order. We ask for sustaining graces for our brothers and sisters. We ask for courage for our brothers and sisters. And we ask for effectiveness as they continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is in that gospel where true help and hope lie. We also pray for those who in their confusion and in their rebellion have changed their perspective of what true sexual reality is, who have changed their convictions on what gender truly is, and ask that your Holy Spirit would penetrate their minds and hearts and turn them to alignment with your word. We recognize that this is not just unique to Canada or the UK, that it is expanding to all corners of the globe and it is continuing to infiltrate our country. We pray for courage and resolve for us as Americans that we will uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ, uphold your design, and uphold your word, no matter what the cost. By your grace and for your glory, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to the gospel of Mark. We're looking at chapter 11 this morning. If you do not have a Bible, would you please grab one of those in front of you in the seat backs and turn to page 847. The Gospel of Mark has highlighted different attributes of Christ, different events of Jesus' life and ministry, and in so doing, has revealed most vividly that Jesus Christ is an unexpected king. Mark Dever writes of a historical event of a man who rode into the capital city of his nation, inaugurating his rule as king. As he rode in, he did so on a majestic war horse followed by 400 mounted men, followed then by 10,000 foot soldiers. The crowd that received him was whipped up into a frenzy. Those who welcomed him were gathered into his movement. There were some who resisted him and were dealt with extremely vividly by execution or imprisonment. 
The man rode into that city, declared himself ruler, declared himself military leader, declared himself religious leader, and that was none other than Muhammad in the capital city of Mecca. His sword is still proudly on display in a museum in Istanbul. Now, the details of his entrance and the response of the crowds are what we would expect for a king's inauguration. How much more so would we expect the inauguration of the king who was predicted to bring salvation to his people, to restore and redeem his people, to establish a kingdom that would pronounce peace over the entire world, that would extend from sea to sea, that would be the end of all conflict and war. How much more would we expect that king to be received in his inauguration, even more so than how Muhammad was responded to? And yet, as we look at this passage and the events and the details that are found in it, we see that the response of the people and the expression of the king was actually unexpected. I hope that as we go through what is most likely a familiar passage and most likely a familiar event, if you look at the header of the paragraph, you'll see something to the extent of triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. I hope as we review these familiar details that the unexpected king will be put on such display that the response that we will have to him will reveal that we are authentic disciples. You'll see the big idea in your notes. The entry of the king demonstrates the unexpected realities of the gospel. Let me read these verses, and then we will look at these four unexpected aspects of the king. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had caught for, cut from the fields. And those went before, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. So he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This event is recorded in each one of the four gospels. There are similar details, and yet the details differ significantly. In establishing that, I want to remind us that just because the details of the event and the words change from the Gospels doesn't mean the event didn't happen exactly as the Gospels presented. 
What it does mean is that the gospel writers had purpose in the details that they provided, and Mark is no different. And so what we will do is look at the details that Mark provides, but we will branch out beyond the gospel of Mark account to be able to see the big picture of what occurred. The first aspect of the unexpected king is that the unexpected king always is sovereign in his control. The king is always sovereign in his control. As is often the case in the Gospel of Mark, the first verse or two of a paragraph or section gives context and background. It says in verse 1 that they were drawing near to Jerusalem. Now, John chapter 12 verse 1 tells us that the reason and the events were that this was beginning to be the time of the Passover. There were four festivals in the Jewish calendar that required every able-bodied man to make a journey to Jerusalem, to the capital city. And that meant that the surroundings of Jerusalem would be overflowing. Often Jerusalem's population would double, triple, and in some accounts would quadruple. So the infrastructure of the capital city could not sustain this growing population. So the pilgrims would stop off at large towns on their way to Jerusalem to make sure that they had all the supplies that they needed. That's why Jesus and his disciples stopped off at Jericho, which was some 14 miles northeast of Jerusalem. As they made their way through that some 3,000 feet of ascent over those 14 miles, they would also mark towns that were near Jerusalem, and those would be the towns where they would stay overnight. Two of them are referenced here, Bethpage and Bethany. Bethany was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. All of these events, all of these details up to this point were significantly normal. And in fact, it says in verse 1 that Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead of them and said, go into the village in front of you. All of this up to this point was normal. All of this is what we would expect of a rabbi who had disciples giving them instruction. After all, he was sovereign. This concept of God's sovereignty is familiar to most Christians. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a church that preached the Bible. I grew up in a Christian school. And so this concept of God being sovereign was familiar to me. If anyone would have asked of me, is God sovereign? My answer would have been immediately, yes. But for me, as I would define sovereignty, I usually looked for parallels that I could understand. Parallels in history. Parallels in culture around me. And so what that would usually mean to me is that God could look through the corridors of time and see what was going to play out in history, was aware of that, and so he would speak of it authoritatively. What it meant by God being sovereign is that he could instruct us what he wanted us to do, and we should do it. But as I began reading what the Bible actually said about God's sovereignty, my parallels in the universe around me faded into the background. I would submit to you there are two significant departures from what we would understand of God being sovereign that are revealed in Scripture. The first one is that God's sovereignty is unique to all other forms of sovereignty. Meaning there are no historical, there are no cultural parallels to 
what God's sovereignty actually is. There is no king or military commander that has even close to the same sovereignty of our God. Here are some verses that are up on the screen that will explain to us that God's sovereignty is different. Psalm 115 and verse 3, our God is in the heavens, and it's not that he's aware of everything. He actually does everything that he pleases. Job 42.2, after those chapters of suffering for Job, after those chapters of Job and his friends wondering why all of these things had happened to Job, Job's conclusion is that God is sovereign, that you can do all things and no one can thwart your will. Paul moves this even a step further in Ephesians 1 and verse 11 saying that you work all things according to the counsel of your will. God's sovereignty is not that he is aware of things. It's not that he can instruct some things. It is that he decrees all things. Now, this blew my mind, and immediately I began wondering about different scenarios. Scenarios such as Acts 2 and Acts 4, where the apostles say that the Father predestined the events of Christ's crucifixion. If that is true, and God's word says that it is, then the sin of Judas was predestined by God. And yet God is not culpable. It does not go on his account. And friends, at some point, this stretches our comprehension. But the point that is valuable for us to understand is that God's word says God's sovereignty is unique. And it does not parallel any other sovereignty that we can wrap our minds around. He knows all things. He decrees all things for his glory. But there's a second reality that we see in God's word about his sovereignty, and that's that God's sovereignty challenges our expectations and definitions. Most often, God works in ways that do not naturally make sense to us. That's why 1 Corinthians 2 says that the natural man cannot comprehend the things of God because they are spiritually understood. And this plays out in our account this morning. It says that Jesus sent the two disciples. That is normal. They're coming to Bethany and Bethpage. That is normal. They're headed to Jerusalem for the festival. That is normal. But he tells them, go into the village and you will find a colt. That is not normal. He says that this colt will be unridden. What's interesting about that point is that anything that would be used for divine or sanctified use was not to have been used in regular use. And this was beginning to be something that the disciples would have processed. This is not normal. In fact, he tells them to untie it and bring it to him. Now, Jesus also says that there will likely be people who ask questions. The Greek grammar here is a third-class conditional, which means a rather certain future reality. Jesus is not just aware of what is going to happen. He is ordaining it, and it does not fit neatly into the expectations of the disciples or the owners of the donkey. 
In fact, the words that he instructs his disciples to say is that the Lord has need of it. What's fascinating about this is that in the original, it says the Lord of him. Who is the him? Well, if you follow the grammar, it is the donkey. This is just ridden and dripping with sovereignty and with theology is that the Lord is saying, wait, I created that donkey, therefore I am the rightful Lord of that donkey. And whether or not the masters understood that this was what Jesus is saying, Mark sure understands it, and he's communicating God's sovereignty throughout this account. He says then in verse 3 that the master will send it back to the earthly masters, and every detail commanded by Jesus plays out exactly in verses 4 through 6. It's also unexpected in, up to this point because in the Gospel of Mark, we never see Jesus riding on an animal. Jesus is always walking or he's riding on a boat or he's actually walking on water. So for the disciples, hearing that Jesus wanted a colt to be brought to him that had never been ridden, understood, okay, Jesus is going to ride on this. This is not normal. This is unexpected. In fact, if you look at history, you'll see that the pilgrims would actually, if, they were, if it was possible, walk to Jerusalem. That was all part of the ceremony. So all of this is unexpected, but all of it puts on display that the king of kings and Lord of Lords is always sovereign in his control. I love the response of the disciples in verse four. They went away immediately, they obeyed. And as we begin to look at the second aspect of the unexpected king, before we do, a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen is this. One of the key attributes of God that should energize obedience is the biblical understanding of God's sovereignty. When you understand God's sovereignty and that nothing occurs in your life or mine, nothing occurs in the political headlines, nothing occurs at any corner of the globe without God sovereignly decreeing it, then we can trust in his character and we can obey. The unexpected king is always sovereign in control. Number two, the unexpected king always is submitted to the word. He's always submitted to the word. Up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been keeping his Messiahship a secret, hasn't he? In fact, scholars call this the messianic secret. Let me give you some examples. You can write down these if you have quick pens. The leper who was healed in chapter 1 and verse 44 was told, don't tell anybody. The demons who rightly declared that Jesus was the Son of God in chapter 1, verse 34, were told to keep silent. The parents whose daughter was raised from the dead in chapter 5, verse 43, was told to tell no one. The deaf man and the crowd who witnessed it were told in chapter 7, verse 36, not to tell anyone. The blind man who was healed in chapter 8, verse 26, was told, do not even enter the village. Up to this point, Jesus had been asking and instructing everyone to keep who he was a secret. But something had just happened in chapter 10, hadn't it? Remember blind Bartimaeus? He had declared and yelled out that Jesus was the son of David, a, a title of messiahship, and Jesus did not tell him to keep silent. 
the disciples were beginning to understand, and the Jews that would be traveling to and in Jerusalem would begin to notice that Jesus is now publicly declaring himself to be Messiah. How can we tell that? Would you turn back to Matthew chapter 21? Matthew 21 is the Matthew account of the triumphal entry. Matthew provides details and phrases that are intended to accomplish his purpose. And as he unpacks the details, Mark does not reference these Old Testament passages because Mark assumes that his readers understand this. Matthew is intended to teach a different perspective, a a different color, a different emphasis. And so he says in verse 4 of chapter 21, all of these details took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. There's actually two prophecies referenced here. The first one is in the first line of verse 5. That is, say to the daughter of Zion. This is from Isaiah 62, verse 11. But the majority of verse 5 is actually a prophecy that is found in Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Would you turn back there, keeping your finger in Matthew 21? Zechariah 9 and verse 9. The prophet is looking forward to a future event and the details that God reveals to him move him to pen these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. But look at this. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The fall of a donkey. Now what's interesting is that Matthew doesn't provide every one of these words. He includes most of them, but he leaves a couple of them out purposefully. I'll explain to you why in just a moment. Verse 10 of Zechariah 9 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And it sounds like what this Messiah is going to do is gain a victory for Jerusalem. But look, it expands beyond Jerusalem. It expands beyond Israel. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah is prophesying an event that centers on Messiah, but expands in benefit and in application to every corner of the globe. This is God's word. I had a conversation with a friend this last week, and he was coming in to ask me about a rather complicated topic in his life. It's a rather complicated topic for anybody who discusses it, and we started thinking through all of the experts that have written on it, all of the influencers, whether spiritual or secular, who might have addressed this topic, maybe what parents have taught, maybe what teachers or pastors have taught. We, we talked about how we as individuals can do research and come to conclusions with our own conscience, but what he said is, Pastor, I want to know what the word of God says. Because after all, all of these other voices of influence in our lives, all of these other so-called authorities and experts, 
have value, but which of them are we required to submit to as our authority? And what happens here is that the authors of Scripture, as well as Jesus, model to us the one authority in our lives that we always must submit to, and that is the Word of God. Jesus is intentionally taking unexpected steps in the instruction to his disciples and in his decision to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey because he's submitting to the word of God. But what's on display in the account of Matthew 21 is that the word of God does not always fit neatly into our definitions and expectations. Go back to Matthew 21, please. Verse 4, Matthew says this, all took place to fulfill. Would you circle that phrase? I was reminded recently that there are times in my sermons where I will say something to the effect of, I wish you all loved this like I do, or I wish that you all cared, and I've realized that is a misplaced statement. I don't ever intend to think less of you I don't ever think that I am more interested in this than you. And in fact, I was reminded that most of our church longs to study the deep things of God, loves to come into every sermon and every time that they read scripture to be enlightened to greater and deeper truths of God's word. And so I know that most of us are aligned in this. And so I'm going to show you something here that is deeper, that is not, uh, you know, freshman scripture study. Anytime that Matthew uses this phrase, to fulfill, he has a purpose. And I'll save you much of the blood and sweat and tears that I've spent over the two and a half years past studying this. When Matthew introduces an Old Testament reference and he says this was to fulfill, he's alerting us to understand that this is more than a prediction. There is theology to be found in the connecting of the dots. In the first two chapters of Matthew, Matthew uses this phrase to fulfill four times. He uses one other Old Testament reference in Matthew 2, which is an Old Testament sighting of Micah 5.2. And in that, he does not say to fulfill because in that, he's saying this is specifically prediction. That's what it is. Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. There's nothing more to see in that. But when Matthew says to fulfill, he's drawing the attention of the reader. No, no, no. There's more to see than Jesus simply fulfilling a prediction. And that's why in Matthew 21, verse 5, he does not include the salvation and the righteousness. That's why in Matthew 21, verse 5, he does not talk about the peace and no more war and the ends of the the, the earth being the dominion of this Messiah. It's because God's word doesn't always fit neatly into our definitions and our expectations, but we always must submit to it. Here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. Submitting to the word means adjusting our understanding, and often it means going against the so-called experts when they are conflicting with the word of God. Friends, there will be a lot of voices that are experts in our lives. It could be counsel from people that we respect. It could be messages from the pastor. 
But the fact of the matter is, is that unless it agrees with all of Scripture, then you submit yourself to all of Scripture and not to the authorities. Friends, this is why in biblical interpretation, it is so important for us to be aware of and familiar with the entire Bible. We can read a passage like Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, and we can draw conclusions from that. But unless those conclusions agree with all of Scripture, then we cannot guarantee those conclusions are valid. Friends, that's why biblical theology is so important. The reminder that every passage, every verse, every word is in a bigger story. And it is the bigger story that informs us what that chapter, what that paragraph, what that phrase, what those words actually mean. Jesus submitted to the word. He is the unexpected king, and as he models, so should we follow. Number three. The unexpected king is always the sole savior. He's always the sole savior. Despite this humble entrance on a young donkey, the people are connecting the dots. They see that there's royal significance. We'll put some examples from the scriptures and from their history that would have been triggered for this original audience. First of all, Solomon in 1 Kings 32 through 48 entered Jerusalem on his father's donkey. Jehu the king at his inauguration, people spread garments before him as he walked to the throne, 2 Kings 9, 1 through 13. We've already looked at this, but Zechariah 9.9 would have been familiar to the crowd there in Jerusalem that David's Messiah would enter Jerusalem in this way. And then for them in relatively recent history in 143 BC, Simon Maccabeus entered Jerusalem with the people waving palm branches, playing music, and praising God. So these are the trigger points for that crowd. They understood there was royal significance in what was taking place. And it says in verse 8, they spread their cloaks on the ground. This was significant. It it was an expression of sacrifice because most people in the ancient world owned only one outer garment. And so they're taking that one garment, they're putting it on the dirty ground, they're letting a donkey ride over the top of it. Others are grabbing palm branches and other vegetation and they're cutting them in the fields and they're waving them in a ceremonial and, and worshipful manner. And look at what they're saying. It's, it says they're saying in verse nine, Hosanna, save us, praise be to God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And look at their declaration. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're beginning to connect the dots. There is a response that appears to be appropriate. And beloved, listen. When a king or someone of great importance is in our presence, there will always be some sort of a response. As I was preparing for this, I was reading the commentary on the Gospel of Mark by Kent Hughes. He referred to an event where in 1981 he was on the runway on an airplane in Manila in the Philippines. And the plane came to a stop and they turned off the air condition and they just waited and they waited and they waited. 
And Ken Hughes looked out the window and he saw some commotion going on and there were limos pulling up. There were military vehicles. There were soldiers that were dressed in, in, in tight uniforms with white gloves and white helmets. There was a band that was playing. There were dancers. There was a red carpet that was rolled out. And as another plane came and taxied, they saw that there was somebody of great significance that turned out to be the prime minister of Sri Lanka. And all of this fanfare, all of this response, the other planes having to stop was appropriate for a person of that significance, appropriate for a person of that authority. And beloved, when we are confronted with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, there will always be a response. It must be an appropriate response, but it isn't always evident on the outside. Let me give you a couple of Evidences of a negative inward response. First of all, there is the negative response that is focused on self, self centered response. This is on display with the disciples. Jesus had revealed to them that he was Messiah, that he would be giving his life as a sacrifice, that he would rise from the grave. And both times that he did, remember how the disciples responded? Let's jockey for position. Who will be the greatest? We often do that with people of importance, don't we? We often bow on the outside with the expectation that somehow we will get something in return. See, just because there's appropriate outward response doesn't mean we're appropriate on the inside. And one of the ways we can evaluate that is to see if we are self-centered or Christ-centered. But the second negative that has been on display and will be in this passage is a fickle faith response. You know, this same crowd that right now is saying, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna, the kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest, will be the same crowd that a few days later will be yelling with the same passion, crucify him. Beloved, one of the ways you can evaluate whether or not you have a negative response is does your faith persevere? The last letter in the five-point acronym of Calvinism, perseverance of the saints, is what we're talking about here. True believers, true disciples will persevere to the end. Just because suffering takes place, just because persecution takes place, just because expectations aren't met does not mean we will fall away. False believers, they will. This is why God ordains suffering in our life. This is why God ordains persecution in our life. This is why God ordains that this week coming up will not match every expectation of your life. Because God understands that true faith will persevere. True faith does not fall off when bad things happen. Now, will we have seasons of our life where we will struggle? Absolutely. Will we have times in our life where we will have sin? Absolutely. But that's one of the gifts that he gives to us is the Holy Spirit to convict us. One of the gifts he gives us is the word of God so we can constantly be recalibrating. One of the gifts that he gives us is the local church where discipleship takes place, where we interact with each other, where we build relationships, where we are accountable so that we can help one another persevere in the faith. Because just because on the outside an appropriate response to the king is on display does not mean that the proper response is going on in the inside. 
So how can you tell? Two ways you can tell. First of all, are you growing in the right motive, mission, and mindset? I introduced this last week, and I heard from a couple of you that it was impactful. It has continued to be at the front of my mind when it comes to leadership, when it comes to processing life, when it comes to moving forward in the Christian faith. The right motive is God's glory. If that is what motivates you in everything that you do, every way that you respond, every way that you evaluate, everything that is going on in life is, may God receive the glory, then you have the right motive. The right mission is discipleship. It's helping others and and helping myself grow to look more like Christ. The right mindset is others first. It is not self-preservation. It is not self-advancement. And friends, if you are growing as a pattern in your life with the right motive, the right mission, and the right mindset, then you can be assured that your faith is real. But a second way you can evaluate this is that you persevere. Is your faith persevering? Doesn't mean you don't have weak moments. Doesn't mean there aren't times where you reach out to others and you ask for prayer. Doesn't mean that you don't lay your head on the pillow at the end of a long day and say, oh, I did not reflect Christ. But what it does mean is that in those moments you recalibrate and you repent. In those moments when you are convicted, you realign yourself with pursuing Christ. When it is brought to your attention that you value something else more highly than you do God, there's something that happens in you and you return to a place of faith. Friends, it is Christ and Christ alone who defines what salvation it is. is. It is Christ and Christ alone who is the sole, exclusive Savior. And just because we say that on the outside does not mean we meet it on the inside. Which brings us to number four. He's always seeking worship. The unexpected king is always seeking worship. And I have to tell you, When I studied verse 11 this week, I I had to wonder, why is it there? I I mean, isn't this incredible? You have this 10-verse story of, of a crowd being whipped into a frenzy of thousands of people seemingly right at the doorstep of faith in Christ, seemingly right at the doorstep of recognizing who he is, and there's all of this going on. And verse 11 says, he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, And when he looked around at everything, it was already late, and he went to Bethany with the 12. I mean, if you were writing a script for a movie, don't you think you would have left out verse 11? The crescendo just seems to be destroyed here. And yet Mark is so insightful by including this here before the verses that follow. It says that Jesus went into the place where the presence of God dwelt. And he looked around. Don't think that he just glanced around. He looked around intentionally. What was he looking for? Well, I want to illustrate it by asking you to do a couple of exercises with me. The first one is, would you look around this room? What do you see? Well, there's an LED wall. There are instruments, there's a stage, there's seats that hopefully are comfortable for you, there's contrasting painted colors for a reason, 
There's acoustic panels. There's ducts to be able to help the air in here be comfortable. There's people working in the back. You don't usually notice them, but they're ensuring that the lyrics are up on the screen. They're ensuring that the live stream is going out to people who are watching online. What is the purpose of all of this that you see? The purpose, beloved, is worship. It's to draw our attention to Christ. It's to put his character on display because when the king is presented, when it is clear who he is, there must be a response. And we want that response to be worship. The second exercise I want you to do is to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Would you do this for me? The reason for that is so that there are no other distractions. I want the only things that you can see to be what your mind brings to your attention. And the question that I want to ask you as you bow your heads and you close your eyes is look around at your heart. What do you see? Maybe some of you see pain. Maybe some of you see sorrow. Some of you may see anxiety. Others of you might be in a season where you're happy. Everything just seems to be falling in place. Others of you might say, well, as I look around at my heart, I I have joy. That settled disposition that is rooted in the character of God so that no matter what circumstances occur, you will be joyful. But as you look around at your heart, would you invite the Holy Spirit to do what Jesus did in the temple? To look everywhere. For some of you, the Holy Spirit might see a throne on which you sit. A throne on which you are the one who is establishing the definitions. You are the one who is establishing the expectation. You are the one who is calling the shots. Friend, I pray that the Holy Spirit will remind you that that is not the solution. That will not satisfy. That doesn't solve the issue of sin in your life. The only solution is the blood of Jesus Christ and the victory he won over the grave. Would you call out to him and ask him to forgive your sins, surrender your life to him? Place Christ on the throne of your life. For others of you, the Holy Spirit might expose that there are some areas of your life you have swept to the corners. And maybe you're wrestling with whether or not you want the Holy Spirit to expose those areas. Others of you, he might be exposing some areas of laziness, some areas of apathy. But friends, when you invite the Holy Spirit to look around at the corners of your heart, what he's looking for is worship. Do you value God above all else? And where the answer to that is something other than yes. Would you respond as we pray, as we sing, as we reflect, to get back to a place where you are right before the King of kings and Lord of lords? And you give him the worship that he deserves.